one of the difficulties with living as a Christian, if you're anything like me, is that the lack of progress, the lack of growth in becoming more like Christ. So maybe it's that, it's that sin or that tendency or that battle or that selfishness that, that months or years or, or decades later you're still wrestling with, still struggling with, and, and you hate it and you say never again, but it's always there. still trips us up. In, in these bodies, this side of Christ coming back, that there will be that fight every day. There still will be that battle. And one of the difficulties with that is that we can always be on the lookout for something extra. The, the shortcut, the solution, the, the silver bullet that will be the answer to our sinfulness. Something exciting, a new theory or a technique or whatever it might be. Something that is the answer to our painfully slow progress. And we're a gullible bunch. And the, the marketers know that. So you walk around the Christian bookshops or you look on Amazon or watch the channels on TV. And what is it this time? It's, it's an obscure prayer from the Old Testament that will be the answer to your issues. It's, it's a technique that's got lost in the annals of time. But if only we would recover it, then we would have this amazing growth. Or worse, it's the fact that we don't need to change because we've misunderstood who God is and what he's like. We're always on the lookout for that something extra. And so it's striking as we get to listen into these prayers in the Bible, we see what it is that Paul is praying for. And it's not a prayer for something extra, But actually it's that we might grasp what we already have. We might come to terms with that. There is no new silver bullet that's going to solve all our problems. Stop looking. Rather it's that we might take hold of who we are in Christ. How blessed we are in Christ. I was very struck um, personally a couple of weeks ago as we had our weekend away by Andy Robinson. Do you remember he talked about the idea that most pastoral issues that that folk have, is due to identity amnesia. That is, we forget who we are, and so we go chasing after other things. So if we've got this room full of beautiful treasure, glistening, glorious, shining, and, and yet we're outside scrabbling on the pavement looking for two peas, we need to know who we are in Christ what we have. And so what Paul does as a response to last week, those jam-packed first 14 verses, those mind-blowing truths, Paul prays. They take Paul to his knees. And as we long to be a church that speaks to God about people, And it's been my prayer this week that we might be devoted prayers. That, Like Paul, when these truths penetrate our all too often cold hearts, we might pray them for each other, for ourselves, just as Paul did in light of verses 1 to 14. If you're here as a visitor, you're just trying us out, you sort of joined us partway through a new series. Let me encourage you if you will, to have a listen in to last week. You can go onto the website, you can download the MP3, um, and then read these verses in light of what you hear there. It will make much more sense in, in many ways. 
What did we hear last week? Well, just a few things to try and get a handle on it, to get our bearings. We thought, if you remember, that as Christians, we live in two places, we said. We live in Oxford, we are rooted, we are local. This is us. Sometimes it can feel a bit daunting, a bit overwhelming. Everyone else seems so much more together and confident and so much better at life in Oxford. But when we think that, then remember that we are in Christ, as he puts it. Because Christ is bigger than Oxford. But being in Christ means you're joined to him. It means as he dies, then you died. As he was raised, then you've been raised. The blessings that he won are yours as you're in him. You are part of God's overarching, sovereign plan for this world. plan that Woody was helping the children understand. Not because of anything good in us. Not because of our track record. Not because of our, our potential. Not because we're in any way strategic. But simply because he is kind. Simply because he has a plan. And he's working it out. And we saw, do you remember, we saw that this plan involves God the Father who selects from before the beginning of time. And we saw that it involves God the Son who secures and forgives and cleanses and redeems a people and who will be seen to be head, 1 verse 10. God the Son who secures and God the Spirit who seals us as a deposit, as our inheritance. All of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, working together as part of his plan. And because of these big picture truths, Paul prays. He prays too, notice though, because of evidence of grace in their lives. He said in verse 15, so for this reason, I take it that one big sentence from verse 3 to verse 14, for this reason... But he's heard about their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all his people. We, we saw something of that faith last week. They were included in Christ when they heard the message of, of salvation and they believed. They had faith in him, verse 13. And there were hints too of their love for each other. Do you remember this love as they began to get to grips with what it means to be Jew and Gentile united in Christ together? A diverse church but a similar church. Grace from God leading to peace with one another. Doesn't mean they're finished. Doesn't mean they're perfect. In Paul's next prayer in Ephesians, in chapter 3, we'll see he prays for more faith, for more love. But he's giving thanks for what they have. And it is striking because he, he prays for this church and he tells them that he prays for them and he tells them what he prays for them which would be a great thing to do if we're a Christian here this morning, wouldn't it? It'd be great to be praying for each other. I guess that kind of goes without saying. When we sort of do that, we do it particularly perhaps when life is hard and we say, I'm praying for you. But, but what about if we're just praying this kind of big prayer that aren't based on such practical needs? It doesn't seem like there was much of a problem in Ephesus as far as we can tell. They seem pretty together. So a little bit of homework, if I may, why not make it your plan this week to perhaps pray for three people and to tell them that you've been praying for them and to tell them what you've been praying for them. What an encouragement. 
to other Christians. Someone did that to me recently, someone here in this room now. They sent me a little note to say they've been praying for me, and here's what they've been praying for. Such an encouragement. As we're family together, caring for one another, praying for one another. Brothers and sisters and mums and dads, loving one another. So, So perhaps tell folk that you're praying for them what it is that you're praying for. And notice as well, before we kind of dive into the prayer, let's just be thankful for signs of God's grace in people's lives. How easy it can be to compare ourselves with them. As an individual or as churches, we sort of look around Oxford and how easily we can feel threatened by them. But isn't it striking how Paul is so thankful for them? I might just say thank you to you at Magdalen Road. It's a privilege to serve you. In many ways, there are lots of people doing lots of things they would rather not do, serving in different ways, but your faith and your love for one another is a fantastic example. It's humbling to see people serving on rotors and stuff they don't particularly want to be doing, but see the need, and it's a way of loving brothers and sisters. So thank you, Magdalen Road privilege to serve you. But into the prayer, verse 17 to 23. And I think in broad terms, there are two big sweeping things that he prays for. The first one is that we would know God better. And to give you a heads up, the second one is to pray that we might know God's blessings better. So firstly, to pray, pray that we might know God better. And the second one we'll see in a moment that we would know God's blessings better. So verse 17. Have a look at it with me. I keep asking that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, sorry, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I wonder if you would say you know God. Perhaps you're here and you aren't a Christian, you're just sort of checking things out. I want to say to you that actually knowing God is fundamentally, foundationally, what being a Christian is about. It's, it's being in the relationship for which we were made, for which we were created. But in our day and age, we need to define who God is. We live in a, in a spiritual time. We live in quite a spiritual place here in East Oxford. People are very keen to construct a spirituality belief system that suits them and and yet it's dangerous because it can almost be like a sort of cookery dish that we're making up. I'll just have a bit of that and a bit of this and a sprinkle of that and pop it in the oven and here comes my God that I believe in. Have a look at verse 17. Why won't that work? Maybe you've just, I don't know, you arrived here and university and you're just chatting to your mates, getting to know people on your course, and they say that kind of thing. From verse 17, why doesn't that work? Why can't we just make God up? Well, remember who Paul is praying to, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't a game of cosmic hide-and-seek. This is the God who's revealed himself in history. This is not imagination. You can see it on a calendar when he came. I've said this before, but if I were to say to my lovely wife, Zoe, if I were to say, sweetheart, I love you. I love your curly red hair. I love your beautiful brown eyes. 
well, that's not her. She doesn't look like that. She's got blonde hair and blue eyes. She stood in front of me. And to get her wrong, at least the problems. <laughs> well, so to get God wrong leads to problems. He has revealed himself to us. And we're not at liberty just to make him up. The first description we've said is he's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, he describes him as the glorious Father. It's an interesting pairing to put together. He's glorious. I take it God's glory, his majesty, his power, his grace. We, we saw lots on that last week, those first few verses. It means we can be confident when we pray to God. It means he is able to answer our prayers. But he's not just glorious, he's father as well. Again, do you remember last time, verse 5, we are adopted to sonship through Jesus Christ. He's not just able to answer our prayers, he's willing. He's a father. He's intimate and loving and kind. He's the kind of father we all wished we had. He's father. And this is the God whom he prays to. Not a God that we can make up, but a God who has revealed himself in history. And he asks, do you see, he asks that the Holy Spirit living in them, verse 17, the Spirit who's a seal and a deposit, this Holy Spirit would, would, would open their eyes so that they might know God better. Notice again verse 17, it's all of the Trinity at work, God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, so they may know him better. Now we need to be careful. What does it mean to know God better? Do you know, it's not necessarily about having facts and information to file away, or podcasts that we listen to, or books that we read, or getting to grips with the Bible, or or bulging notebooks of sermon notes, or getting different books of the Bible under our belts, or always knowing the right answers in a Bible study. It's really important. It's about relationship. Knowing God is not about information necessarily. We can have a, have a head full of information, but, but a heart that is cold to him. He prays that they might know God better. If you've not read Jim Packer's um, book, Knowing God, I want to say to you, read it. If you've not got it and you want a copy and you will read it, come and talk to me and I will buy you one. I'll not check that with my wife, but we'll sort that out. Come and talk to me afterwards. If you will read it, we'd love to buy you a copy because it's that important. He says this about knowing God. He says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into a knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. Isn't that what Paul is doing? These truths in 1 to 14 lead him to prayer. Lead him to prayer. That in the midst of the messiness, the pain of life, the reality of living in a broken world of uncertainties and doubts and difficulties, that our knowledge of God would not just be theoretical or facts or hypothetical, but rather that we might know him, 
be friends with him. That we would remember who we belong to. Now, it's worth acknowledging this idea of knowing God is a strange concept for some. So if you are here and you aren't a Christian or you're not sure or you're just not quite sure where you stand but you've got questions, it's great to have you with us. We want to say we've always got folk who wouldn't call themselves Christians who are here among us on a Sunday morning, just sort of trying things out, just looking into things. Um, I'd love to chat to you afterwards, but I'd love to say as well that we hope in the next month or so to start one of our Christianity Explored groups. An opportunity for you to think through some of the questions, perhaps, that you have. Perhaps an opportunity to hear some answers as well, to look at the Bible. I mean, if that's going to be helpful for you, or perhaps you've got a friend for whom it might be helpful, then do come and grab me. We'd love to be able to serve in that way. So firstly... He prays that they would know God better. Perhaps however long we've been a Christian, that we would know God better. Secondly, verse 18 through to 23, that they would know God's blessings better. So do you remember the identity amnesia thought? Do you remember when you forget who you are in Christ, when you forget what you have in Christ? then suddenly the world becomes a very scary place and we start running after other things that we think will give us life, that will satisfy us. We're there on the pavement looking for two peas. We've got a mountain of gold in the house. I think there are three things that he wants them to latch on to. Three aspects of being in Christ, three of these blessings, three parts of God's plan perhaps. Let me read verse 18 on through to 23 again. See if you can spot the three. I'm just going to try and make this stand up. Verse 18 then. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So the first one there, verse 18, there's hope that he prays for. We'll see as well that he prays for for riches, even they may know the riches of his glorious inheritance. And verse 19, power. Hope, riches, power. Firstly, the hope to which he has called us. It's interesting, if you... If you read the Bible, if you know Paul's letters, you know that often he has faith, hope and love together as a triad. They're a favourite three that he puts together. And you see he gives thanks for their faith and their love in verse 15. But it seems that their hope is something that he wants them to get more of a grasp of. And we saw hope last time. We saw it in 1 verse 10 as Tom was teaching the children. This is the final page of history. This is the plan. This is where it's all going, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Perhaps they've lost sight of their hope. 
Perhaps the Temple of Artemis in the centre of the city is looming large, not just in Ephesus, but in their hearts. They're wondering, can I keep going? Is it worth keeping going? Paul says, I'm praying for your hope. For a hope that you will know where you're going and that it is worth keeping going. When you feel like waving the white flag, when you've just had enough, press on. Isn't that prayer of hope a hope for our day? Some of us find it hard enough just to plan a week in advance or know what we've got on tomorrow let alone our our eternal hope then impacting on us now. The end of the story making a difference to the middle of the story. We can be very bad at this. Or maybe we do plan, we're good at planning ahead, we've got the next 30 years or so mapped out, we know where we'd like to be, we know the career ladder we'd like to move up. We've got plans about doing up the house or the kind of family we would like or the new area that we're going to move to, whatever it might be. But a longer-term, eternal, hopeful perspective doesn't make much of a difference. That's what Paul prays for them. In Oxford, that kind of thinking is quite countercultural. People will do all they can to avoid thinking about eternity or death or what comes next those big questions most people most of the time struggle with that but here Paul is praying for Christians that that we would get it we would know where we're going and that that hope would impact now because you see if 1 verse 10 is really true then everything changes Everything is different. If all things will be brought together under Christ's headship one day, then everything is different now. The world is different. So let's pray for one another that we might be a church, a people, who know this hope, who are impacted by this hope, that the culture of the now in our world would not diminish the impact of that hope to our lives. That we might press on, keep going, even when it's hard. So he prays that they might know the hope to which he's called them. Secondly, he prays for the riches of God's inheritance. And this is a slightly weird phrase. What does this mean? The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So some say it is to do with our inheritance as Christians. This is what we will have in the future. He's talking about hope again. It could well be that. But it's interesting because others note that the original could also mean the riches of the inheritance that God will receive in his people. This is what God will get. But what kind of inheritance does God get? What does he need? What does he inherit? If you were here last time, 
you remember as we read 3, 1 to 14, we said that Paul was retelling the story of the Old Testament again and again and again. So some of the language he was using was Old Testament language. We were meant to join the dots. He's retelling it in Christ. So maybe it's words like blood or redemption or adoption or being predestined or sonship, or choosing, or sealing. They were Old Testament words redefined in Christ. And you see, when God rescued his people from Egypt in the Old Testament, they were to be his inheritance. They were a people for himself, a people belonging to him. So have a listen to Deuteronomy 4, verse 20. Remember Deuteronomy, we're on the borders of the promised land, God's people rescued from Egypt, about to go into the land he's promised them. And here is Moses reproclaiming God's laws, two big sermons, three big sermons. And he says this, Deuteronomy 4, verse 20, The Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his inheritance, as you now are. So maybe it is just the riches of God's inheritance being what we will have. But I wonder if Paul might be wanting them to grasp the incredibly high value that God puts on his people. We are his inheritance. The riches being this glorious, diverse community brought together. War being done away with. Jew and Gentile united in him. Peace. God's wisdom to a watching cosmos. And so to know the riches of God's inheritance in his people means to to live up to that unity that he has already achieved for us. We'll see it later as we go through Ephesians, but to be humble, to submit to one another, to love one another. The riches of God's inheritance. So hope, riches, thirdly, power. The power for us who believe. The rest of the prayer, really, um, from verse 19 onwards, is Paul going off on one about the power that they have as God's people. So imagine, as far as you can, you're in Ephesus. You look around first century Ephesus. You're in a prosperous town centre. You see the ships and the harbour, and you see traders. You see roads. There's commerce going on. You see the very grand and impressive Temple of Artemis in the centre of the city, one of the seven wonders of the world. The other thing you might see in the city centre is, is evidence of magic. It was a, an occult centre. We'll see, again, power coming up week after week in Ephesians. There were mystery cults in the city. There was astrology and sorcery and exorcisms and magical arts. So power was important in Ephesus. Magic was important Perhaps they would have felt a bit weak and vulnerable. Perhaps surrounded by these powers. And so what does Paul do? He says, look at real power. Look at real power. And he wants them to grasp that they have this real power. Verse 19, his incomparably incomparably great power for us who believe 
That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Intimidated by wealth and prestige and commerce, overwhelmed by the temple of Artemis, fearful of magical cults and names being invoked. Don't forget that you have this power living in you. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead, and it's in you. It's the power that seated him above all heavenly realms. It's in you. He's at the right hand of the Father. It's the power to recreate the world, the first fruits of that hope to come, in Christ. It's the power above any name that can be invoked, not only in this age, but the one to come. It's the power that will raise those in him. You're on the winning side, Paul says. You're proof of that? Easter Sunday. Jesus was raised. He has won. And then he goes on, verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So the purpose of Jesus being raised, do you see, it's for the church. It's all part of God's plan to mend the broken world. We've already seen 1 verse 10, here's where it's going. But he is head ahead over it now, 1 verse 22. It's a glimpse of the unity then seen in the local church now. And so do you see how hope and riches and power are all important. They all come together. Stick with me in this. Hope is where it's all going. He wants them to know where they're going. Riches is who they are now. They are that part of that plan for the future in the now, the glimpse, the foretaste of what is to come. And the power, that is to get them there. This is God's plan to use the church to mend a broken world. Of course, we would do it differently. We would have meetings and a huge marketing budget and a clearly defined plan of action and someone famous and visible to front it all up. But God uses the local church. He works through the margins. He works through weakness. Little local churches like Ephesus, like Magdalene Road. It's a staggering claim. Imagine you're in Ephesus, one of the recipients of this letter at the very beginning, and it's read out to you in your church, and you've got family involved in magic and incantations. You've got a next-door neighbour involved in that kind of stuff too. Perhaps that was your background, your history. They are subject to Christ. He has power. Small group of Christians in Ephesus meeting in someone's home, probably feeling wobbly, weak, intimidated. They're not just some new and insignificant cult. They are participants in the heavenly reign of God. Why? Verse 22. Because Jesus has been appointed head over everything for the church. 
This means that a group of Christians in Oxford sat in a primary school gym, feeling weak, unsure, a bit daunted about the future, a bit confused. We're not to feel like that, because we are participants in the heavenly reign of God. Because Jesus has been appointed head over everything for the church. And it all sounds very lofty, very grand, very theoretical. But it means in reality Jesus is reigning now in heaven on our behalf. Now he is working out his plan for his church. Do you believe that? You can see why he prays for them to have the eyes of their hearts opened, can't you? Because we struggle to believe that. Because we're sat at our computers or in lecture theatres or drinking coffee with friends or on the school run or sawing wood or changing nappies or doing the account or whatever it is that fills our week. And those things must seem much more tangible and much more real. But Paul says, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart will know he is working all things as part of his plan for the church. And you know, he's doing it through the messiness of our lives. It's through normal people, doing normal stuff with normal conversations, filled with his power. So maybe we're just getting a glimpse of why there is no need for some new silver bullet to deal with our issues. No new technique or trick or wisdom that puts us on the fast track to victory or whatever the phrase might be. Don't be taken in by those things. What else could we need? Because we have everything we need in Christ. We have all the treasure we could want. Let's not go looking for two peas on the pavement. But as we finish, let me encourage you to pray, please. To be prayers for one another, for those sat around you, for other Christians, other Christians in Oxford are the churches around the place. Let's pray that we would know God. Not just know about him. Not just know facts and information and theories and ideas. Not just be experts in our Bibles. But that actually we might know him. And love him. And pray too that we might know the blessings which are ours in him, that the eyes of our hearts will be opened to actually believe them. Pray that we might know the hope to which he's called us, that 1 verse 10 would change us, because we know where it's all going. That we might know the riches that we are as his people, his inheritance. We might know that what he is doing now, he is doing in and through local church. but that we might know the power as well for us who believe. We might know that he will get us there because we have the power of the resurrection living in his people.